0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Hey, Merry Christmas to listeners who are celebrating. Indeed. Or, I mean, if you aren't celebrating, you just want to be wished Merry Christmas. Today's episode is coming out on December 25th, so it seems like a good time to talk about A very Christmas-related listener request, which is how the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, started tracking Santa Claus on Christmas Eve every year. This is something that we've gotten several requests for, including from Elaine and Tori. And at one point last year or the year before, I asked on our Facebook page for people to suggest holiday ideas. uh, And somebody suggested this one, and a lot of people were like, I would like that, please. (laughs) So here we are. So this whole story that circulates about how NORAD started tracking Santa is pretty heartwarming, but it doesn't 100% uh, hold up. So there's a little bit of myth busting here and maybe just the tiniest, tiniest bit of bah humbug.
0: <laughs> maybe just a little. Wait, you're telling me it didn't start with Jack Skellington and his attempt
1: to take over Christmas? No, but that would be, uh, I didn't I mean, even that put that sense. in the outline.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. He was a threat. They had to start watching him, and then they were like, let's do it every year. That's my version.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like your version. So uh, a note to parents on this one. If your kids eagerly awaited St. Nick's arrival this year, then today's show is probably a little bit more mature and candid than they'll really enjoy. So we would recommend saving it for later or giving it an advanced listen on your own uh, to decide whether your kids would enjoy hearing it before sharing it with them.
0: The story of NORAD's annual Santa tracking really begins, not with Jack Skellington, but with the Cold War. After the end of World War II, the United States increasingly felt the need to prepare a defense against a potential Soviet attack. Lots of different projects and programs were related to this basic idea, but when it comes to NORAD, the worry was of a direct attack by Soviet bombers reaching U.S. soil. That meant that the nation was looking for a way to detect such an attack when it was still far enough away to intercept before anyone came to harm.
1: At first, this task fell to the Air Defense Command, which divided the responsibility up among different Air Force commands around the country. Each command was responsible for protecting a different part of U.S. territory. But by the 1950s, with fears of a Soviet attack continuing to escalate, the United States created a unified command to oversee protection of the entire nation. This was the Continental Air Defense Command, or CONAD.
0: CONAD was a multi-service command, combining the Army, Navy, and Air Force, but the Air Force still did a lot of the heavy lifting. CONAD's efforts combined long-range radar systems, which would provide advance notice of an incoming attack, with aircraft capable of intercepting that attack once it was detected. So it was basically like a tripwire made out of radar, and if anything tripped the wire, the Air Force could respond quickly and aggressively.
1: Eventually, the United States military came to the conclusion that it was not enough to focus just on the United States in this effort, uh, not when there was a neighbor to the north that would almost certainly be flown over in the event of a Soviet attack. Since Canada shared the United States' fears about the possibility of such an attack, it made a lot of sense for the two nations to work together. The U.S. and Canada
0: had been, at least to some extent, sharing domestic defense plans since the 1940s. In the 50s, they began signing defense agreements related to expanding this long-range radar capability into Canadian territory.
1: This cooperation kept growing until the establishment of NORAD, or the North American Air Defense Command, which was the successor to CONAD, on September 12, 1957. NORAD was initially headquartered at Ent Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, which was home to the U.S. Continental Air Defense Command and the U.S. Air Force Air Defense Command. General Earl Partridge of the U.S. Air Force, previously commander of both CONAD and the Air Defense Command, became commander of NORAD. And he was joined by Deputy Commander Air Marshal Roy Slayman from the Royal Canadian Air Force.
0: Although the treaty allows for the NORAD commander to be Canadian or American, and it's a requirement for the commander and deputy commander to be from different countries, traditionally, the commander has been American and the deputy commander has been Canadian.
1: After extensive debate and a fair amount of controversy, the formal treaty that came to be known as the NORAD Agreement was signed on May 12, 1958. It provided the framework for how the two countries' governments and militaries would cooperate in the realm of air defense.
0: NORAD's headquarters had actually moved a couple of times since it was established. First, in the 1960s, it moved from Ent Air Force Base to the Cheyenne Mountain Complex in Colorado. This is the massive underground complex of buildings constructed under a literal mountain designed to be able to survive virtually any attack or disaster. This facility has actually made its way into popular culture through depictions like the 1983 movie War Games, the TV series Stargate, and the fictional Crystal Peak, California, in Terminator 3, which is very clearly patterned after Cheyenne Mountain.
1: (laughs) It's so very clearly patterned after Cheyenne Mountain that I, in the years that have intervened since seeing that movie, Conflated them in my head, and when working on this (laughs) podcast was like, oh, wait, that was a different place. In 2006, NORAD's day-to-day operations were moved to Peterson Air Force Base in El Paso County near Colorado Springs, with the Cheyenne Mountain Facility continuing to work as NORAD's alternative command center. The NORAD agreement itself has also been
0: reviewed and revised several times since it was originally signed. Since 1958, the agreement has been renewed nine times, including four major revisions, which took place in 1975, 1981, 1996, and 2006. The shift from air defense to aerospace defense, as it's known today, came along in 1981 as well.
1: The primary missions of NORAD under the 2006 renewal are aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning for all of North America. And there are a lot of different potential threats that are looped into these three primary missions, including attacks by aircraft, missiles, or space vehicles, drug trafficking and other illegal activity carried out by air, and nuclear attacks delivered by strategic ballistic missile, cruise missile, or long-range aircraft. The maritime warning component also relates to both nations' internal waterways and the maritime approaches to both countries.
0: So, after getting through all of this, it may seem a little weird for NORAD, the binational Cold War-era entity once headquartered in a sophisticated bunker complex under an impenetrable mountain, which is responsible for detecting long-range threats to North America by air, water, and outer space, to track Santa Claus it does sort of seem like an awful lot. Uh, After all, at least in terms of international military defense, Santa
1: Claus is not a threat. And there's no mention of Santa at all in the NORAD agreement. So we're going to talk about how this all came to be after a quick sponsor break. And if somehow you still have very young listeners with you after having gotten through all of that air defense talk, uh, it really might be a good time to find another activity for them. (music) Tracking of Santa is often compared to the September 21st, 1897 editorial in the New York Sun. That is the same paper that published the Great Moon Hoax in 1835. This editorial ran under the headline, Is There a Santa Claus? more commonly known today as Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus, thanks to its later reprintings in children's book form.
0: It started with a letter by Virginia O'Hanlon, daughter of coroner's assistant Dr. Philip O'Hanlon. She had written to the New York Sun earlier that summer, quote, Dear editor, I am eight years old. Some of my friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia had intended for her letter to go into the Sun's Q&A column, notes and queries, but it went unanswered.
1: I just need to take a minute to note the irony of... (laughs) If you see it in the sun, it's so when the sun published the great moon hoax. (laughs) It's
0: sort of beautiful. I mean, uh, did you not know that that was not a hoax? Those, Those bat people live on the moon, Tracy. They were
1: definitely lunar beavers. That's for sure. Anyway... So young Virginia O'Hanlon anxiously awaited for her letter to be answered. It was not until weeks later when the paper published an editorial response by Francis Farcellus Church. And it began, quote, Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant in his intellect, as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus.
0: We won't read the whole thing, it goes on, but it ends. No Santa Claus, thank God. He lives, and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood.
1: Although this editorial is often remembered as an immediate, instantly beloved success that became an annual tradition right from the beginning, The Sun didn't actually print it again until 1902, and then again in 1906. Between 1907 and 1917, it was printed six more times, and the Sun started reprinting it annually in the 1920s.
0: The story of the Yes, Virginia article and that of NORAD tracking Santa do have some similarities. Both start with an inquisitive child, followed by the somewhat surprising response of an adult, which then grows into something that's a ubiquitous part of Christmas for a lot of people.
1: We have a lot more verifiable detail about Yes, Virginia than we do about NORAD's tracking of Santa. We know who Virginia was and who her father was. We know who wrote the column and when it was published, although it didn't originally carry a byline. Thanks to archived copies of the newspaper itself, we know when it was reprinted and when it wasn't. And we can see the newspaper's attitude about these reprints shift over time, basically moving from, well, since you people are asking again, we will print this thing, I guess, to, here is our beloved holiday classic, please enjoy it in the spirit of Christmas. (laughs) And by comparison, the NORAD
0: story is a sieve. (laughs) The most popular version goes like this. In 1955, Sears Roebuck and Company ran an ad in the Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph, and that ad read, quote, Hey, kiddies, call me direct on my merry Xmas telephone. Just dial ME2-6681. Kiddies, be sure and dial the correct number. Call me on my private phone, and I will talk to you personally, anytime, day or night, or come in and visit me at Sears Toyland. And that was signed by Santa Claus. The number actually appears in two places. Mary Xmas morphs into ME26681
1: as well. Yeah, the ME and Mary turn into the first two parts of the first two letters of the exchange for the phone number. So the most popular version of this story is that ME26681 was a typo. Connecting callers not to a special Santa Claus call center at Sears but to the top-secret red phone at Conad headquarters, the one that was a direct line to the Pentagon, known only to top generals and the president. In this story, when the red phone started uh, ringing off the hook, Conad staff played along.
0: A number of stories uh, and versions of this telling also cite a specific person having answered that phone, Colonel Harry Schaup. Schaup told the story himself in multiple interviews over the years. In an interview that was recorded toward the end of his life, he says that he answered the red phone, thinking that it was the Pentagon or Colonel Partridge.
1: When he realized that the caller was not the Pentagon or Colonel Partridge, Schaub thought that it was someone on his staff playing some kind of prank on him, and he did not appreciate it at all. But then he realized that it was a child, a little girl, trying to reach Santa. So he played along, hearing the child's entire wish list and the fact their house had a chimney and her assurances that she would leave food out for Santa and the reindeer, at least in the portion of the interview that's publicly available, he doesn't mention a misprint in an ad.
0: Schaup's adult children told the story a little bit differently in a StoryCorps segment that appeared on Morning Edition in 2014. Pamela Farrell, Terry Van Curen, and Rick Schaup, who would have been about 10, 6, and newly born when this all happened, are in line with their father's version when it comes to his being, at first, annoyed at this call. But the way they tell it, the call was from a boy, whose mother eventually came on the line to tell Schaup about the misprinted ad. In the StoryCorps version, the misprint meant that the boy's call was one of many, so many that Schaup tasked two airmen with answering the phone.
1: Their StoryCorps account goes on to include a moment later that same Christmas season when one of the men at Conad headquarters had drawn Santa's sleigh on the glass board that was used to track aircraft. Schaup saw it and from that had the idea to tell a radio station that Conad was tracking Santa on Christmas Eve.
0: The communication with the radio station probably came from Colonel Barney Oldfield, the public relations officer, and not from Schaup directly. There was indeed an Associated Press article on Christmas Eve, 1955, in which Conad assured Santa safe passage. The article also somewhat alarmingly explains that U.S. and Canadian forces would be guarding Santa's flight from potential attack by Christmas haters.
1: It uses almost those words. I don't remember the exact wording that it uses, but it's basically like, we are protecting Santa from the enemies of Christmas using our armaments.
0: I'm going to go with another Jack Skellington moment here. <laughs>
1: It seems pretty likely that there was a child who accidentally called Conad in 1955, likely trying to dial a number that was in an ad. There was a December 1st, 1955 article in the Pasadena Independent with a dateline of Colorado Springs, which reports that a youngster reversed two digits of a number set up to answer queries about Santa and instead reached Conad. Colonel Harry Schaup is quoted in this piece as having replied to this child, quote, there may be a guy called Santa Claus at the North Pole, but he's not the one I worry about coming from that direction. I also tried to find evidence that this ad really did run in the Colorado Springs Gazette in 1955, but the archive that I had access to only goes back to 1960, by which point ME26681 was the phone number for a a Colorado Springs real estate agent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Merry listings, everyone. <laughs> but even though there is that likely grain of truth in the starting point, this story has clearly blossomed and morphed a bit over the years. In the earliest recorded accounts, the child reached an unlisted number, not the red phone. And since the entire point of the red phone was to have a direct, uninterruptible line between Conad and the Pentagon, it would not have even been connected to a public exchange where someone could dial it by accident.
1: It's also not all that likely that an ad having a phone number in it would contain the same typo in two different places. I mean, I can see some scenarios where that would happen, but it's more conceivable for a child to have fumble fingered the phone number one time than for the number to have been wrong in the ad twice and sparked an avalanche of calls to Conad. And the naysayist of the naysayers suggests that this ad was created and printed by ConAd sometime after 1955 to add support to this whole story or to kind of nod to the whole story that it was not like the ad. There's a picture of the ad that circulates around. People are like, that's a mocked up ad. Yeah, it's like
0: retroactive folkloric proof. (laughs) Um, And though we do have the account of Colonel Schaup and his grown children based on their childhood memories, so far there is no record of any person or certainly any hundreds of people coming forward to say that they accidentally called Conad in 1955, attempting to speak with Santa.
1: I want to make it super clear here that I don't think the Schaup family was, like, intentionally making anything up. But when you tell the same story over and over again for 40-something years or however long, it gets bigger over time, especially when you're, like, having to do it in front of an audience. Well, and there's
0: also the telephone factor, by which I mean the game of telephone. Yeah. we're like, because they were children when this all went down, I'm sure that story was also told to them by adults. Right. As part of, like, you know, the family folklore, and those details probably got slippy along the way. Many things contribute to that. I think we've all had those family stories that are, like, That seems a little different from the way I heard it 20 years ago, but okay, no harm (laughs) in there.
1: So according to NORAD's own account, by the time NORAD replaced CONAD, the Santa Santa tracking was an annual tradition, and we're going to talk more about how that developed and grew after another quick sponsor break. Military efforts to do a little Christmas PR by way of Santa Claus actually go back to before Colonel Schaup and the Sears ad. For example, the United States State Department Telegraph Branch distributed a copy of a radiogram that had been purportedly dispatched to Chris Kringle at the North Pole on Christmas Eve of nineteen forty-eight. It said in part, quote, Your coming mission in connection with Operation Noel awaited with considerable interest by Department. Reaction, your visit, expected to be one of joy and goodwill to wide-eyed children.
0: The communique then went on to authorize Santa to communicate to all men a, quote, united desire for peace on Earth. And it authorized him to proceed down all chimneys, though, quote, you are not, repeat not, to omit consideration of even the smallest stocking.
1: Apparently, the State Department gets to boss Santa around. (laughs)
0: Like how does a chain of command even work?
1: <laughs> <laughs> So an Air Force seasonal communique that same year read, quote, our early warning radar net to the north gives following spot position report of object detected heading southerly direction. One unidentified sleigh powered by eight reindeer at 14,000 feet heading 180 degrees. Interceptors alerted and vectored but unable contact. Estimated time of arrival over target 2400 hours, 24 December forty eight. So the
0: combination of the military and Santa predates uh, Colonel Schaup and that whole story. And according to a 2000 write-up in Airman Magazine, after that errant call or calls to Conad in 1955, Conad's tracking of Santa became an annual tradition pretty much immediately. According to this article, in 1956, public relations officer Colonel Barney Oldfield asked Colonel Harry Schaup if they might set up a special phone line for Santa inquiries after the wild success of the previous year. Schaup actually didn't want to, but the media had already gotten wind of this idea, including visiting his home and getting his kids all excited about it. Uh, So he begrudgingly agreed, and by the time NORAD replaced CONAD a year later, this was an established tradition.
1: This write-up though is one of those things that was written many, many decades after this originally happened, and there is some doubt about exactly how big a deal this was in 1955 and 1956. An August second, 1956 article on Colonel Schaup in the Pittsburgh Press is all about his public and media relations work on behalf of the military and CONAD. It's really focused on an award that he was receiving for handling a jet noise problem in Madison, Wisconsin. But it also mentions that he was on See It Now with Edward R. Murrow, and he had consulted on a short film called 24-Hour Alert starring Jack Webb, which was basically a propaganda short for the Air Force. The
0: Pittsburgh Press article ends with Schaup saying how important it is for urban dwellers to, quote, feel themselves in league with and contributory to air defense. But it makes no mention of Schaup having had anything to do with Santa Claus or any Conad program to track Santa. If that 1955 Christmas had been such a success, with a 1956 Santa hotline already in the works, it likely would have been mentioned given the subject of the article. He was uh, being covered in the Pittsburgh press, we should mention, because he actually grew up in nearby Bessemer, Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, so not only had Schaup done a bunch of media-slash-PR work for the military leading up to this point, it seems really weird if the Conad-Santa tradition was already such a big deal that it would not have come up in the context of what they were talking about here.
0: Unless, I wonder if they would have omitted it in order to... um, Protect the younger crowd,
1: like Maybe. you can't tell the
0: story of how it came to be without divulging some information,
1: sure that could make sense. I still have doubts though <laughs> <laughs> so anyway I mean that's once again similar to how people remember in air quotes the New York sun's Yes, Virginia column as this instant classic, even though it didn't become an annual feature for decades, and the sun was actually kind of grudgingly doing it at first. But it seems likely that Conad's Santa tracking programs had kind of a lower and smaller start than the whole hundreds of people called in 1955. And we've been doing it ever since uh, progression, which is how it has entered the popular understanding of all this.
0: NORAD's Santa tracker was definitely spreading by the 1960s, though, with NORAD producing and sending vinyl records to radio stations to play as scheduled Santa updates. On the B-sides were Christmas songs performed by the NORAD Commanders Band. That, to me, is perhaps the most charming thing in this entire episode.
1: In the 1970s and 80s, the focus turned to TV with similarly pre-recorded Santa status updates that were replayed year after year. This is definitely what I remember from my, my childhood. Uh, I, I specifically remember the warning that, that ended with, All children go to bed immediately. <laughs> in a very stern voice. Uh, and there was one year that, like, I needed to brush my teeth or something, and I wasn't quite old enough to do that on my own. And my mom was tidying in the kitchen, and I was very distressed that NORAD <laughs> was telling me I needed to go to bed immediately. But, like, my mom was not available to brush my teeth.
0: I had a similar distress, confusion, concern, because... um my mother and I would go to midnight mass usually. Oh, and I was like, "How can this be right? That this is a thing we're supposed to do, but this is the thing that the government is telling us to do." <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: it was a uh, conflicting directives that led to a little bit of stress. We were very stressy children. Oh. I think I think we were. <laughs> I I was a, I was and I'm still an anxious person. I was definitely an anxious child, and I was very worried that if I was not in bed on time, that Santa would come to our house. I would. Not not be in bed, we would not get any presents. Uh, also, in this same era, in 1971, NORAD spent about three thousand dollars on a NORAD tracks Santa publicity film. With the evolution
0: of the internet, Santa tracking has, of course, become ever more complex. Starting with a partnership with AOL in the World Wide Web's early years, a SantaCam network was also launched in 1998, which was the Santa trackers' first online year.
1: At this point, I mean, really, since the early years, this is unquestionably at least as much about PR for NORAD and others as it is about seasonal goodwill. There is merchandise you can buy. There are corporate sponsorships, which are reportedly what pays for this today, although I have some questions. <laughs> uh, like it's as a person who works at a job. It makes sense that maybe the budget for the online Santa Tracker website is coming through corporate uh, partnerships. But, like, are the corporate partnerships paying for the jet takeoff that we're going to talk about in a minute? How does that work? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, like, it. It's definitely, regardless of who is actually paying for all the things, it's a PR effort. There's a flashy website. In 2012, NORAD and Santa, a winning combination, was awarded the Silver Anvil Award of Excellence for Reputation Management and Brand Management by the Public Relations Society of America.
0: Is Santa getting a cut of any of this? That's what <laughs> I want to know. I have questions, too. Um According to the PRSA site, in 2011, NORAD saw a 664% increase in website traffic because of Santa Tracker publicity, along with a 30% increase in social media traffic over just a month. This note ends with, quote, Because of the NORAD Track Santa program, NORAD is a household name. Now more than ever, NORAD is universally recognized as their premier authority monitoring the North American skies.
1: This is why a couple of years ago when people got really upset that there was a NORAD track Santa video in which there was a fighter jet escorting Santa in his sleigh, people got like really mad about the militarization of Christmas and other people were like, where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> this has been going on for decades All of this radio and TV and online work has also been accompanied by pictures and videos and articles peppered through with references to all the high-tech military gear that NORAD says it's using to track Santa. So the descriptions of the Santa Tracker are also a chance to sort of clue the public in on what kind of technology NORAD has at its disposal. For 2017, that includes NORAD's North Warning System, which is a collection of 47 radar installations in Canada and Alaska, along with infrared satellites to detect Rudolph's nose, and a worldwide Santa Cam network that turns on the cameras about an hour before Santa enters a country and then turns them off again when he leaves. And Canadian NORAD pilots fly CF-18 fighter
0: jets out of Newfoundland to welcome Santa to North America. This
1: is where I'm like, does a corporate sponsorship pay for that? And is it a takeoff that's actually happening for real? (laughs) That's the part that I'm more
0: inclined to question. Did
1: that really happen? And this is one of the ways that the NORAD story really diverges from Yes, Virginia. Yes, Virginia is all about how Santa is real, emphasizing imagination and faith and the intangible, but not suggesting that he is an in-the-flesh human person that the writer himself personally met at some point. NORAD, on the other hand, straight up says that the fighter jet pilots have have intercepted Santa a bunch of times and that Santa always waves because he likes to see the pilots.
0: <laughs> today the norad track santa website is in english french spanish german italian japanese portuguese and chinese there are apps available to track him for apple and google play as well as a presence on facebook twitter youtube and instagram OnStar can track santa and there's, there's a norad track santa alexa skill For a while, Google Maps had an official partnership with NORAD for the Santa Tracker, but that partnership ended in 2012, and Google put that work into its own Santa Tracker.
1: I read an article that was like, I tried to get into the bottom. I tried to get to the bottom of what happened between NORAD and Google. (laughs) Was there a fight? Was there drama somehow? No one really knows. Today, the NORAD Track Santa Call Center has more than a thousand volunteers who answer calls every Christmas Eve they about the volunteers average roughly forty calls an hour. It's usually a two-hour shift. They also answer questions by, via email. A lot of kids calling in asking where Santa is, uh, questions pertaining Santa and presents and Christmas and things like that. <laughs> and it's clear that, regardless of the
0: shakiness of the origin story, Colonel Schaup ended up loving the NORAD Santa tracker. His children described it as the thing he was proudest of in his career. And after his retirement, he would still help with Christmas Eve Santa tracking. Colonel Schaup died on March 14, 2009, at the age of 91.
1: And that is the history of why NORAD tracks Santa every year. Uh, <laughs> I I still have some questions that some of which will never be answered. Yeah, I don't think any of our questions will be answered.
0: Do you have any listener mail that we can answer questions or reply to in sure a more can. concrete
1: way? So yes, this is uh this is from Rachel. It is about our recent six impossible episodes that was all listener requests, and it is about the great Wyndham Frog fight. And uh I would like to say that that episode came out yesterday afternoon, like mid-late afternoon, Eastern time yesterday afternoon. (laughs) By nine o'clock this morning, we had six emails about the frog fight. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly the frog fight was the hit for that day. Uh, And Rachel says... Hi ladies, I nearly jumped out of my chair when in your most recent episode, you covered the frogs of Wyndham. I grew up in Willimantic and frogs were everywhere in town. As you mentioned, there is an operetta by, uh, by Burton Levitt called the frogs of Wyndham. Many organizations find a way to incorporate the frog into their logos. The town has even done painted frog sculptures, much like the painted scout, the painted cow sculptures in other towns. The image that you used of the bridge represents a few things about Wyndham. The spool of thread is from the American Thread Factory, a major employer in town in the 1800s to 1900s. The frogs on them are, I think, a frog common to Puerto Rico, which represents the diversity in town. The version of the story that I heard is that once people heard the tale, uh, the tale townsfolk were known as the Fools of Wyndham, and people would reply that they were not from Wyndham, but from Willimantic. The county is actually Wyndham County and contains the towns of North Wyndham, South Wyndham, Wyndham Center, and Willimantic. Willamantic is the Algonquin term for the river. I was just so excited that my hometown was covered in one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you for all that you do and all the interesting topics of conversation that you start. Cheers, Rachel. Thank you so much, Rachel, for this note. Uh, it is always, we've said before, so nice to hear from people who, when we tell a story that's local to them, have some uh, personal local history slash flavor to share about it. And I I was not expecting the frog fight to be nearly as popular in our email as it has been just in the, like, less than 24 hours between when that episode came out and when we are recording this <laughs> one today. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast or history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're also all over social media as Missed in History. So that's our Facebook and our Twitter and our Tumblr, which I haven't updated in a while. Maybe I should get on that. It's also our Pinterest and our Instagram. Our website is MissedinHistory.com where you can find uh, show notes on all the episodes that Holly and I have ever worked on. Uh, a searchable archive of every episode that we have ever done. There's a tag up there called Christmas Episodes that has all of our Christmas episodes that we have worked on, uh, which this one fits right into. So you can do all that and a whole lot more on our website, which is mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.